This is the famous chapter in God's word about faith. And in verse 6, a statement is made, without faith it is impossible to please him, that is God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And the very next verse tells us that by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, please note that phrase, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world that and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So, in faith, Noah, believing God existed and seeking God, in reverent fear, obeyed God and did what he told him. And today, I want to talk to you about a very important subject. One of the key phrases in all of Scripture, and that phrase is the fear of the Lord. I'm sure you've heard that wonderful gospel hymn, Amazing Grace, and the lines in it, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. It's really interesting when you think about it. Grace taught my heart to fear, and then grace relieved my fears. What fear? Or the fear of whom, perhaps we should say? It's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. How does that phrase strike you? The fear of the Lord. I think the first time I encountered it was when I was a a boy reading a comic book. I might have been about 10 years old, and that was my reading diet in those days, comic books, and it was about a historical something or other, and they referenced some people in Germany living in the 1700s and said they were God-fearing people. You've probably heard that term, God-fearing That was, I think, the first time I heard the term, and uh, I can remember my reaction to hearing that. It was not positive. I thought there are plenty of things in the world to be afraid of. Let's not add God to the mix. And then uh, a few years later, there was my friend Ed. He was a little bit older than me when I was a teenager, and I remember him saying how disgusted he was by the term fear of the Lord fear of God. He said, huh, should be love of God, not fear of God. And because Ed was an authority on rock and roll, I figured he knew what he was talking about. He said, yeah, love of God. I like that better, I think, I guess. It's a pretty common feeling, I suppose. Uh, Actually, I think that term, the fear of God, has just about disappeared from common use. You don't hear it much anymore a vestige of an almost forgotten Puritan passing, and most people say, good riddance. But of course, I'm, I'm here today to argue that that term not only should be revived in our language, but that the reality that it represents should permeate our lives. Uh, actually, even 
fill our hearts with joy and wonder and even delight. The fear of the Lord. Strange as it seems, the heart that both fears and loves God is not a divided heart, but a heart that is united in a singular way because the fear of God and the love of God are both rooted in something called trust, trusting God. So if we have faith in His warnings, which will cause us to fear, and faith in His promises, which will draw out love from us, we'll find that our lives are united in a wonderful way. You see, Noah had faith in the warnings of God. And if we read in Genesis, in that account of the building of the ark, we find that Noah found favor with God, and Noah specifically, we're told, walked with God. We know Enoch walked with God, and then he was not because God took him. But in the very next chapter, the same thing said about Noah. Noah also walked with God, but God didn't take Noah because he had a task for him to do. And for those of us that are doing our best to walk with God, he hasn't taken us up immediately either because he's got work for us to do here so if we love God and if we fear God we'll find favor with God and walk with God because Noah in reverent fear built an ark as God commanded for the saving of his household and I'd like to just say something to uh, especially the fathers that are here that take seriously the responsibility they have before God to provide for their families and protect their families. Fear of the Lord is by far the best thing that you can do to protect and provide for your family. Noah did this to the saving of his household, the saving of his family. Well, the fear of the Lord is a pretty common phrase. There are a lot of scriptures I'm going to be referencing because uh, this is what you call a topical sermon. Um, you take a topic and then you draw from different places in scripture that speak to it. And so it's kind of all over the place. We're not just going to go from one text. So instead of making you turn in your Bible all the time, I'm just going to... Trust me, this is in the Word of God. You can write down the references and look it up if you, if you have any doubts here. But Proverbs 1.7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's Proverbs 1.7. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Ecclesiastes 11.13 says, let's hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. So the fear of the Lord's beginning of knowledge, the fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom, and the end of the matter is fear God. So you could say from beginning to end, the fear of the Lord is present in all of wisdom, all of knowledge, all of understanding, and all of life. As a matter of fact, that, that phrase in Proverbs 1-7 occurs there for a specific purpose. It's set apart in such a way as to lead most scholars to think that the motto of the book of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord. I was a Boy Scout, okay? Boy Scout motto. Anybody remember that? Be prepared. 
Boy Scouts, by the way, have fallen on hard times. I don't know if you follow the news. It's really kind of sad, but um, it's an organization. It's done a lot of good. Be prepared. Did me a lot of good. Got in a lot of trouble as a Boy Scout, too, but that's another story. Organizations like the Boy Scouts, they will come and go. The only organization that's going to stand the test of time is the Church of Jesus Christ. And so the motto of the book of Proverbs and the motto of the godly man and woman, godly boy and girl, the godly Christian should be the fear of the Lord. A motto, that's a word to live by. So let's talk about this a little bit. Uh, it requires some education to learn this. Psalm 34 verse 11 says, the psalmist says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you you the fear of the Lord. So again, we have the figure of a father speaking to his children, and it's something that they need to be taught. As God's people, we need to be taught the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Now, I mentioned a little while ago that it's an off-putting phrase, and, and it really is because the fear of the Lord or the fear of God uh, can be understood in a couple of different ways in Scripture. And I think if I tease out these two different ways, you'll see why we as Christian people should love it, even though it's, it is a fearful thing. Okay? First of all, the fear of God or the fear of the Lord can refer to the terror that unrepentant sinners have when they come face to face with the judgment of God. So first of all, that fear of God is used in the Bible in a way that refers to unrepentant sinners before God. Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. And then it says a couple of verses later, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah. And Jesus said these words in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. He said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, that was our Lord Jesus saying those words. And he said many other similar things. It indicates our desperate condition apart from the saving grace of God. Apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, we have every reason to fear God. Because we stand in great danger. This is illustrated by the... Uh, the ancient Greek legend, the Sword of Damocles. Have you ever heard about that? The Sword of Damocles? Maybe you have. It's a classical illusion. According to the legend, there was this king named Dionysius, and he had a court attendant by the name of Damocles. And Damocles used to flatter the king and tell him, oh, how wonderful he was as a king and how glorious was his court. And it must be so wonderful to be a king like you, Dionysius. And then the king got tired of all this flattery and this empty speech. And so he took 
Damocles, and he dressed him up in his royal robes, and he sat him down at the royal banqueting table and had a feast set out and had all the attendants serve him with all the pomp and circumstance that attends royalty, had it all done up just for Damocles so he could enjoy being a king, but Damocles did not enjoy his meal one bit. You know why? Because the king had suspended over his head by a horsehair a sword pointed straight down at his head. And he made Damocles sit there and eat his food. That's what it's like to be a king. You're always in danger. By the way, one of the reasons that kings like to stay in power and will kill everybody else to stay in power if they have to is they know that whoever kicks them out of power will kill them. Not an easy thing being a king. Damocles understood the point. He knew, no pun intended, yeah. He knew <laughs> that he lived under the threat of death. But how many people are there today who are ignorantly feasting or fasting unaware that a far more dangerous sword, the sword of the Lord, hangs over their heads ready to fall. This fear of the Lord, this terror of the Lord is a reality that is avoided and ignored in our day. But as it says in Hebrews, it is appointed unto a man once to die and then comes the judgment. That is an appointment that everyone will keep. That's why it's so important, as we were hearing this morning in our singing and in the exhortation that came from Tyler, that our Lord Jesus Christ has endured the punishment that we deserved so that we might avoid this kind of the fear of God. You're probably familiar with the name of Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan preacher and pastor in colonial America back in the 1700s, probably best known generally for his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And most people think that Edwards was a hellfire and brimstone breathing crazy guy that just loved to frighten people. It wasn't anything like that at all. He was very kind, very gracious. He delivered his sermon without dramatic expression. But he wanted people, because he loved them, to understand that apart from the grace of God, we stand in judgment of God. And in that sense, the fear of the Lord does strike fear into the hearts of people. No wonder they don't want to hear anything about it. But as Christian people, we face all of the truth, and we face it because it's presented to us in God's Word. Becoming aware of the fear of God in that sense will turn many a soul toward God, seeking for mercy. Well, that's one way to understand the fear of God. But the fear of the Lord for the Christian has a different meaning. And that's because the terror regarding judgment is no longer in view. And it's no longer in view because our Lord Jesus Christ has faced that judgment on our behalf. He suffered for our sin so that we might be freed from condemnation Recently, I've been soaking in Isaiah 53, a wonderful chapter that poetically expresses the passion 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Tells us that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one of us to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I have been thinking more and more about how much Jesus did to deliver me from the dangers of judgment and to bring me into a reconciled relationship with himself. All this is because of what Jesus did. When you think of the cross of Jesus Christ, you can think, my friends, that it is reconciliation through satisfaction. We're reconciled with God through the fact of Jesus satisfying God's justice. We sang earlier a great hymn by Charles Wesley that expresses the relief and the confidence that our souls experience as a result of what Jesus did. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in thy behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. What's a surety? A surety, well, that's an old English word that refers to a person who takes responsibility for another, guarantees the payment of a debt. Before the throne, my surety stands. That is Jesus Christ standing before the throne. He ever lives to intercede for us. Because five bleeding wounds he bears. One, two, three, four, five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. I'm so glad we sang that hymn. I hope you love the old hymns. Now that was to a newer melody. That's okay. It's the words that count. If you read those, if you sing those, it gets into your head and has a wonderful way of sinking down into your heart, permeating your living, and so that you understand this fear of the Lord and you can be thankful to God for it. Because it's amazing grace that we've experienced that gives us the joy of being forgiven. So I guess the question is, well, then are we now done with the fear of the Lord? Can we just throw it off to the side? Does it no longer have any meaning for us? You know, some mistakenly conclude there's no place in the life of the Christian for the fear of the Lord, but they're wrong. Bruce Waltke has called the fear of the Lord the foundation for a relationship with God. And even this little statement, the fear of the Lord, this motto of Proverbs, it is to reading what letters are to the alphabet, what numbers are for doing math, what notes are for doing music. In other words, this is the basic building block of a relationship with God. John Murray called it the soul of godliness. And another old writer, Charles Bridges, said this. He says, but what is this fear of the Lord? It is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his Father's will. His wrath is so bitter and his love so sweet that hence springs an earnest desire to please him. And because of the danger of coming short from his own weakness and temptations, 
a holy watchfulness and fear that he might not sin against him. Jerry Bridges said that there's a healthy tension that exists in the godly person's heart, a healthy tension between the reverential awe of God in his glory, properly understood, and the childlike confidence in God as heavenly father. Without this tension, the Christian's confidence can easily degenerate into presumption. What, what do I mean by that? It's like, well, you probably heard, that, you know, colloquial, familiar, even presumptuous references to God, like the man upstairs or Jesus is my bro or, you know, it, it makes you a little bit uneasy. Uh, the idea is because Jesus said, I call you my friends, then we just think of Jesus as our bud and God as just our daddy in a sense that misses the idea that our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is of an entirely different order of being than we are. In other words, for us to have a relationship with him, he had to condescend to come down to our level. So God, the infinite God, has an act of divine condescension entered into a relationship with us. And it is intimate, and it is warm, and it is fatherly, and it is brotherly. But it's never to be taken for granted. It's never to be made light of. Jesus isn't my buddy like Jim's my buddy. We're on the same level. Actually, he's a little higher than me right now. <laughs> Jesus had to come down to my level, and I should always be grateful and thank that. Here's an illustration that I found uh, years ago in a book by John Piper. I'll read it. Kids might enjoy this. He says, there's a fear that is slavish and drives us away from God. And then there's a fear that's sweet and draws us to God. Moses warned against the one and called for the other in the very same verse. Exodus 20, 20, when he said, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. You get that? He said, do not be afraid that the fear of God may remain with you. Makes you scratch your head. So Piper goes on. He says, the clearest illustration I've ever seen of this kind of fear was the time one of my sons looked a German shepherd in the eye. We were visiting a family from our church. My son Karsten was about seven years old. They had a huge dog which stood eye to eye with a seven-year-old. He was friendly, and Karsten had no problem making friends. But when we sent Karsten back to the car to get something we'd forgotten, he started to run, and the dog galloped up behind him with a low growl. Of course, this frightened Karsten. But the owner said, Karsten, why don't you just walk? The dog doesn't like it when people run away from him. If Karsten hugged the dog, he was friendly and would even lick his face. But if he ran from the dog, the dog would growl and fill Karsten with fear. Now that is a picture of what it means to fear the Lord. God means for his power and holiness to kindle fear in us, not to drive us from him, but to draw us to him. His anger is against those who forsake him and love other things more. The safest place in the universe 
is with our arms around the neck of God. And the most dangerous place is any path where we flee from his presence. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, Jesus Christ is portrayed as a lion. And although the children are often allowed to put their arms around him, it's also made very clear he's not a tame lion. There's this healthy tension inherent in this understanding of the fear of the Lord. Actually, an awareness of this, as Charles Bridges said, will do wonders for our moral improvement. Proverbs 15.3 says that the eyes of the Lord are in all the earth, beholding the evil and the good. I was just a little guy one day when my mom said to me, God can see everything you do. I remember my follow-up question was, can he even see through the roof, through the ceiling? (laughs) Yes, he can. Wow, that put the fear of God in me for a little while. Leviticus 19.14, thou shalt not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but thou shalt fear thy God, I am the Lord. Not curse the deaf? Why not? He can't hear me. No, but God can. Don't put a stumbling block before the blind? (laughs) Why not? She can't see it. Yeah, but God can. Well, we've said some things about the fear of God and this tension that exists between a confident love and trust and a reverential awe. I've been a Christian now about 50 years, and so I've seen this work out in practice in my own life. There are certain things that I perhaps could do, but that I don't do because I'm not sure they would please the Lord. And above everything, I want to please Him. That's an aspect of fearing God. I try to check in with the Lord daily and ask Him to lead and to guide me. But probably more than anything else that I could do or that you could do that would help you find an appropriate balance in this would be for you to read your Bible, for you to read it today, for you to read it every day, for you to read it all the way through to make that a constant practice and a habit in your life, because then you will receive wisdom and knowledge from God. And over time, it will seep into you and it will give you this kind of... um, antenna so to speak so that you can sense from scripture what it is that pleases God Psalm 25 verse 14 says that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them 
his covenant. The friendship of the Lord. Another translation says that the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. You want to have that kind of relationship with God where he lets you in on his secrets? Well, his secrets are found in his word. We're not talking about any kind of outside esoteric knowledge. But we find that from the fear of the Lord. These are benefits that come to the soul who fears God. Friendship with the Lord. Also, another benefit is fellowship with others who also fear Him. Malachi 3.16 and 17 says this, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in His presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored His name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. I had the good pleasure of preaching on this passage a couple of years ago, and so I delved into it a good bit. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and someone was listening in. It was the Lord. He listened and he heard. He took note. Oh, these are people who fear the Lord. They have a way of finding each other. You can kind of sense those who have this understanding of God. And so those who feared the Lord talked with each other. The Lord listened and heard, and then he did something else. He wrote a scroll of remembrance, noting the names of those who feared him and honored him. Oh, is that the book of life? I think it is. God writes down the names in his book of those who fear them. And then he goes on to say specifically, they will be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And that term treasured possession, it's a very interesting term. Uh, Kings would have access to all the wealth in the kingdom, but then they'd have their own special personal wealth, their personal stash. King David had that. He had access to all the wealth in the kingdom, but he also funded the construction of the temple that his son Solomon would build out of his personal stash, his treasured possession. You know, I'll bet you have some personal stash somewhere. You probably have a little box, maybe in one of your drawers, where you have special things, maybe that silver dollar that your grandfather gave you. (laughs) Or perhaps some special thing that it's, you know, if, if the house is on fire, that's where you go. You grab that thing and, and, and you make sure that doesn't burn up. That's your treasured possession. Those that fear the Lord, that's His treasured possession. And it's not just you. You have fellowship with others that fear the Lord. That's really good. There's other benefits as well. Psalm 34 verse 9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. No lack. Yeah, the young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who fear the Lord, they have no lack, no want. They've got all that they need. And they're safe. This is a really cool one. If you fear the Lord, you're safe from other fears. Fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
Yeah, I like to say it like this. If you fear the Lord, you need fear no one and nothing else. If you fear the Lord, you belong to Him. And your life is indestructible until He says your time is up. And when He says your time is up, you don't want to hang around any longer anyway. You can go ahead and be bold. You can live bold because your life is hid with Christ in God. There was a bishop in the Anglican church back in the 1500s. His name was Hugh Latimer. He died as a martyr. He was burned at the stake for the sake of the gospel by Mary. And she came back to power. But Hugh Latimer was alive at the time of King Henry VIII. Remember King Henry VIII? He was a very interesting guy. Um, It's just really hard to, in a couple of sentences, describe Henry VIII. He had a lot of wives. They didn't fare too well. Um, But Henry was somewhat of a theologian himself. He was very interested in the church, very interested in theology. He was also very interested in being in charge. So he spearheaded what we know as the English Reformation, which was different than the Reformation on the continent. Uh, It was basically the Roman Catholic Church, but Henry took over as the head instead of the Pope. But there were a lot of people in England at this time that wanted to see the gospel go forth, and Hugh Latimer was one of them. William Tyndale was another one. He's the one that's mostly associated with the translation of the Bible from a Latin into English. And if you read your Bible in English which you probably do, you can thank William Tyndale because he did it for the most part. There were others, but he was the chief guy, and he paid for it with his life. There was another guy that paid for it with his life, and that was this guy, Hugh Latimer. And Hugh Latimer became a bishop, and he did not shrink from attacking anyone's sins. And he made this statement one day when he was preaching. I believe it was before Parliament, but King Henry was there. And J.C. Rao writes the following. He says, Latimer did not shrink from attacking anyone's sins, even if they were the sins of a king. When Henry checked the distribution of the Bible, stopped it from going forth, Latimer wrote him a plain-spoken letter long before he was a bishop, remonstrating with him on his conduct. Latimer feared God, and nothing else did he fear. Beginning one of his sermons, he said to himself, Latimer, Latimer, thou art going to speak before the high and mighty King Henry VIII? who is able, if he think fit, to lift thy head from thy body. Be careful what thou sayest. But Latimer, Latimer, remember that thou art also about to speak before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Take heed that thou dost not displease him. So did he fear King Henry VIII? Yeah, sort of. But he feared God more. And if you fear God more, you need fear nothing and no one else. A lot of people are very fearful these days. Let me give you a couple of tips on dealing with stress and fear these days. Watch your intake of media. Watch it, will you? I mean, today it's possible not only to know that 2,000 people died in a flood in India yesterday, But it's also possible to see their faces in anguish. And if you're a sensitive kind of person, I mean, terrible things have been going on all the time, but now we have instant access to them and by video. And so you can treat your soul to all of the cares and all of the horrors of 
the entire world if you want to sit in front of a screen and treat yourself to that and then wonder why you have trouble sleeping at night. You don't have to know everything about everything that's going on. None of us can. Be wise. Seek the Lord for wisdom in terms of your intake of media. But the other thing that you can do of a positive nature is learn to fear the Lord. I'm going to close by inviting you to open your Bibles to Psalm 112. I will ask you to turn to this because this is the godly man. I'm not, I'm not trying to exclude women here uh, or boys and girls. You know, women, you have your own entire chapter, Proverbs 31. You know. <laughs> Come on, all right? But this is, this is a godly man, but it also would apply to the, to the godly woman. We're not excluding anyone here, okay? All right. This is a combination of blessedness and the fear of the Lord. Now, Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 are to be taken as a literary unit. They go together. If you look at the end of Psalm 111 and verse 10, it says this. Are you there? Psalm 111 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Oh, wow. That's, that's right in line with my sermon. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Keep reading. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. So you see the connection between 111 verse 10 and Psalm 112 verse 1. They're meant to be taken together. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. The little syllogism there tells you that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord and the man who fears the Lord is blessed. And what do we see about him? Well, he's a man who greatly delights in God's commandments. Now, this is poetry. And the key feature of Hebrew poetry is something called parallelism. The second line matches the first line. It's meant to explicate or explain further the first line. The second line helps us understand the first line. So Psalm 112, the first line says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. That's parallel to who greatly delights in his commandments. So, the man who fears the Lord is the man who greatly delights in his commandments. God has commandments. Do you delight in them? You should. This man greatly delights in them. The fear of the Lord, commandments of God, greatly delighting, they're all connected. All right, this is, this is supposed to grab our attention. We don't usually associate fear with delight, much less great delight, but that is the point we are to get. If we read God's Word, the commandments of God, and we read it with this understanding that it is the wisdom of God that comes from the fear of the Lord, then we begin to read our Bibles with not just, okay, I'm reading my Bible. No, I'm looking at it because it's going to tell me some very important things. The commandments of the Lord. It really makes sense when you think about it because if you walk in the commandments of the Lord, you'll walk in wisdom, and if you walk in wisdom, you're walking in God's ways, and then things will go well for you. It doesn't mean things are going to go perfectly. There's still going to be difficulties, but boy, they'll go a whole lot better than if you don't walk in His ways. 
And after you practice it for a while, you gain a heart of wisdom and you begin to experience life as God wanted you to live it. And this psalm, Psalm 112, teases this out in a wonderful way. You know, sometimes the psalmists rhapsodize about the commandments of God and the laws of God. Have you ever read Psalm 119? Oh, how I love thy law! And it going on and on. It's like, wow, really? Yeah, yeah. Because they've read and they've soaked in it. They're not just being effusive, they are being wise. The man who fears the Lord is the man who greatly delights in his word, and this is the man who will be blessed. And this is the key point that's operative. If it's in our lives, if we truly love God's word, the rest of this psalm will inevitably follow. And what does the rest of the psalm say? Well, if this is true of you, you're going to have a blessed family. A blessed family. Does that sound like a good, good thing? To have a blessed family? Verse 2 says, his offspring, his descendants, will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. So if you fear the Lord, if you greatly delight in His commandments, your descendants will benefit. That's your children and your grandchildren will be blessed. Blessed is a good thing, by the way. Blessed is like a combination of Christmas morning and the last day of school. For my money, the last day of school beat Christmas morning hands down. I never felt so happy as when it was the last day of school. And still, I get up and I think, praise God, I'm going to have to go to school again. <laughs> what a happy guy I am. That's to be blessed. That's to have your needs met. Well, this is a blessing I want for my children and my grandchildren. The overwhelming number of people who are Christians today are Christians because their parents were Christians. And because their parents lived out the Christian life. And they might go through periods of rebellion, perhaps, but on the other end of it, most of them turn out to be Christians. Because like it or not, you're connected to your parents and your grandparents. And the older you get, the more you think about them. There's not a day goes by that I don't think about my mother and father. And most of it is happy thoughts. <laughs> Okay. Not all of it, but most of it. All right, if you fear the Lord, if you greatly delight in His commands, you will have a blessed family. Also, you'll have blessed wealth. Verse 3 of this psalm says, Wealth and riches are in His house, and His righteousness endures forever. Do you like wealth and riches? Yeah. Well, look, this doesn't mean luxury living. That's not what's in... in this is an agrarian culture that we're talking about here, so... They were subsistence farmers. So for them, wealth meant that they had a good harvest and it meant they had food enough for their household and enough to give to others. And by that standard, uh, we are all wealthy. Today, actually, by comparison, we'd be considered fabulously wealthy. Well, this man's blessed wealth is matched also in the psalm by his generosity. He gives to others. He gives to the poor. Now, I'm just touching on the, the tops of the waves here. So there's blessed family, there's blessed wealth. Blessed wealth, by the way, doesn't evaporate. It, God has a way of making sure it sticks around. Some people get rich quick and they get poor quick, you know. Some people win the lottery and then you hear how bankrupt they are the next week, right? 
No, that's not the kind of wealth we're talking about here. So you've got a blessed family, you've got blessed wealth. How about number three? This is a good one. This psalm talks about blessed stability. Verse four, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Verse six, for the righteous will never be moved. He's not afraid of bad news. Verse seven, his heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. Verse 8, until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Now, if you look at this carefully, you'll see that it does talk about darkness. There is darkness. There's bad news. There are things to fear. There are adversaries because this is real life. Bad news comes and bad things happen. But for this man, for this woman, light arises in the darkness. Yeah, weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. His heart is firm. His heart is fixed. He's established. He's not shaky. He's not falling apart. Yeah, bad news comes and bad things happen. We're not in heaven yet. This is a fallen world. There are adversaries. There are bad guys out there. But for the man who fears the Lord, for the woman who fears the Lord... There's blessed stability. And the reason is found at the end of verse 7. He's trusting in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He'll direct your paths. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Depart from evil. It will be health to your navel and marrow to your bones. Another odd sort of language to talk about the blessed life. Don't lean on your own understanding. It doesn't mean you can't consult it. Of course you have to. But that's not what you lean on fully and finally. What you lean on is the Lord. This is the person who fears the Lord. It's also the person who trusts in the Lord. It's the person who waits on the Lord. It's the person who gets to know the Lord through the reading of His Word. This is the man, the woman, the boy, the girl who fears the Lord. All right, let's stop. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father,